There's a quote that I always used to like, and it's helped me process why some people respond to suffering in different ways. Okay? And the quote says, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And I've thought about this quote for many years as a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for nine years, and I thought about this, and I've seen it in action. And normally this quote is actually applied to the gospel. Some people hear the gospel and their heart is hardened. Other people hear the gospel and their heart is softened. Same message. But I think you can apply it to suffering because I see, and I've seen different people go through similar suffering. You can never say it's the same suffering. Everyone's different. But they go through similar types of suffering. And certain students or certain people I know have come out of that with very soft eyes. They're very gentle. They're very compassionate. They're very understanding. Other people have come out of that and they have very harsh eyes. They're they're cold, they're, they're cynical, they're critical. Some people go through same types of suffering, but some people come out well, some people come out humble, other people come out bitter. And I've been thinking about what to preach for us because I had... Uh, just the choice, and my mind kept coming back to this text of Romans chapter 8, because Paul is trying to encourage the church. He's trying to encourage his church, how can you suffer well? How can I encourage you to suffer well? How can I encourage you in the most sensitive way to suffer and not waste your suffering? And the difference, so much of the difference for students that I've seen that have come out well is that they have the theology, they have the tools, they have the theological tools in their tool belt to really be able to process suffering in the right way. They know what the Bible says, they have a proper worldview, and they have the theology to think correctly. And so that's what I want to do, because that's what Paul does in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in the middle of Romans chapter 8. And he takes a step back from the suffering, and he gives a global or even a universal perspective. He gives God's perspective, a heavenly perspective, a higher perspective on their suffering. And so I think this is going to help us think as a Christian, to have a Christian worldview when we deal with our present suffering. And so the outline will be very simple. Um, there's two points and basically a conclusion, okay? The first point is the now. Okay, we're going to talk about the now. The second point is the not yet. And then I'll, sh- I'll close with some final thoughts, okay? And so the now, the not yet, and then some closing thoughts, all right? And so let's talk about the now. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 30. And let's really read it together. Read it with me as I lead this time, okay? Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I always argue that this is maybe, to me at least, the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And when we're talking about the now, that's the first point, look at how Paul describes creation, okay, this world, nature. Creation, verse 20, is subjected to futility. It's frustrated. Creation, verse 21, is in bondage to corruption. It's in slavery. Verse 22, creation is groaning together. And groaning is this picture of pain. It's frustration. Nature and the world we live in is not what it was meant to be. It's not what it was created to be. Nature is frustrated. Everything dies. Everything wears down. Nature is now a killer. Nature is in pain. Life is born. Life is lost. There's misery, there's decay, there's breakdown, there's entropy, there's disease, there's pandemics, there's floods, there's cancer. There are bodies that are breaking down. And so it describes, it personifies nature as groaning. It's in distress. It needs help. It's not free. It's not itself. And so we see a lot of its beauty, and it's there because creation is not... um, It's defaced, but we could still see some beauty, but it's in bondage. And even today, I don't need to go much into this, but it's amazing that we see creation groaning all around us. We just can't stop it. We can't stop the groaning. We can't stop a pandemic. We can't control it. Even in modern times, it happens still. That's Paul's version of this, okay? But it's important for us to have a really good theology of of the fall, Okay, and when Christians refer to the fall, we're talking about Genesis 3, which explains the way the world is today. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 9 through 19, the fall, here it's sort of the effects on creation. It says, verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your, bre- of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Cursed, thistles, chaos, emptiness, brokenness, weeds choking plants, 
nature is alienated okay, from us. We were supposed to be in charge, rulers over nature. We're supposed to live in harmony. But now, creation is alienated from us. I see this all the time. Okay, I see this all the time. I, I was thinking like a year ago, I was like, man, I need a hobby. Okay, I need something to do. And so in my little patio in my previous apartment, I would try to grow plants. But I was not the type where I was like, I'm going to go and buy plants that are already established. I wanted to grow it from seed. Okay? I wanted to grow it from the ground up. And it just constantly <laughs> felt like there was this force working against me. Or in nature around me, I remember I would go outside, and every single time I go outside, there are those big bumblebees, like those black bees that would constantly just fly around. Eventually, I would see that there's cockroaches and different insects and all these different bugs. And most of my time was spent watering every day, trying to faithfully water it. But constantly, it would just be weeds that are growing out, and I'm cutting and I'm cutting, and it just became this groaning effort. I actually decided like two months ago at the beginning of the pandemic, okay, forget it. I'm not going to grow from seeds, so I just bought some established plants. And even then, I'm trying to grow these tomatoes, and it's a struggle. Everything is constantly dying. I know there's people that have like a green thumb, and they're good at growing. There's things are constantly dying. And then one time, I was successfully growing tomatoes. I go outside, and when they're just starting to grow, I see that they've all been pulled off by my son, Micah. Okay, I was like, no, right? They're all pulled off. And then I was like, oh, that was so painful. Okay, that's not nature. Okay, but there are caterpillars growing on it. There's all these bugs growing on it. The weather, this one hot day almost killed the plants by itself. And it's this constant struggle. When Tabby, my daughter, was uh, five months old, I was at a retreat and... I was, I was, you know, I was just walking back to my cabin and I saw a beehive. The second I saw the beehive, I started running. Okay, I had my five-month-old baby in my hands. I started running. I get to my apart, uh, to my cabin, and Tabby has this big welt on her on her leg. She had been stung by a bee, and I was just like, "Why did the bee go straight for the baby?" I ran as fast as I could. But nature constantly works against us. Our bodies are breaking down. <laughs> um, when I was uh, 24, just to give a couple of just personal examples, I, was, uh, I, I threw out my back. I was only 24 years old. This was 10 years ago. I threw out my back. And how did I throw out my back? I got into the shower, and then I threw out my back. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> I just stepped into the shower and then suddenly I threw out my back and I was on my back for two weeks after that. This past Sunday, okay, and this is why sometimes I don't like preaching because God is going to make me experience what I'm preaching. This past Sunday, I woke up and I had fractured my foot. How did I fracture my foot? I think I just went to sleep and I woke up and I fractured my foot, okay? That was it, okay? And I had been walk, playing with my kids the day before, but I woke up and I was pain, and now I have tendonitis, and I have a stress fracture on my foot. I'm in a cast right now. You can't see that. And our bodies, creation is just groaning. Creation is working against us. Creation is cursed. We see this. 
And these are silly examples I've given you, but you've seen this. You've seen this in your family members. You've seen this around you. Creation didn't choose this, it says later in Romans, but God chose to curse the world in response to Adam and Eve's sin. He cursed it in hope, but it was God who cursed the world. It was God's judgment upon the world. And so creation is currently groaning right now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. And and he emphasizes, we ourselves, we who have the first fruits, we have the Spirit, we who have no condemnation, we have freedom in Christ. We've been transferred from this uh, dark age to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Even we ourselves groan. It's almost as if he's arguing with prosperity gospels. Uh, prosperity gospel, those who say health and wealth gospel, if you live faithfully, you should live, uh, you'll be rich and healthy and live a happy life. It's almost as if he's arguing with those people who would say, no, not us. Not we who have the first fruits of the spirit. No, not even, not us. And Paul's saying, no, even us, or you can even say, especially us. The context of this verse that I read, just so you know, the verse that comes before it, in verse 17, Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs. It's talking about how we, have, we are heirs of God. We are going to receive an inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I wish I could take out that last part. Philippians 1.29 just to give another verse, says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, great, great so far, but also suffer for his sake. And if we're honest, those are the parts of the verses we're like, oh, okay, let me just sort of ignore that. And I want to focus on the part where it says, man, it's been granted to me for the sake of Christ that I should believe in him. He not only says children of God will suffer, but it's because we're children of God that we will suffer inwardly and outwardly. And I, again, don't have to elaborate too much on what that looks like for you to be in pain or to be groaning because some of you are there right now. You're dealing with personal hurt. Someone has hurt you. And that's, again, a result of the fall. We are alienated from God. We are in bondage to sin, and therefore we have conflict to others. The ABC, alienated from God. We're in bondage to sin, and therefore we have conflict with others. We're groaning. You grow angry that things aren't functioning the way that they were designed to. You're overwhelmed right now. You're confused by the state of our world. You feel hopeless because of the amount of effort it takes, and it almost feels like your efforts are useless, so you want to quit. You feel the cares. Jesus describes it as the cares of the world. It's just those little things that add up again and again and again. And I really think it just feels like it's true that when it rains, it pours. You feel like everything is just so complicated, so complex, so twisted, one obstacle after another. You have or are dealing with the hurt of losing someone whose body broke down. We are groaning inwardly, even when outwardly things are fine. And that's like a misconception people have. Like, hey, look at your life. Everything looks good. Everything looks good. 
but we're still groaning inwardly. Like, there's always just something wrong with me. Like, why can't I get my act together? Because the problem is in me too. And it's not just the creation or nature that's subjected to futility. There's a sense of futility in all of us as we live in this fallen life. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he put it well when he says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And those that know me know that I'm a cynic, and I'm full-on embracing my cynicism with Solomon. It's like, man, vanity of vanities, weariness. Something is always... It just feels like, man, my life is so good, but why do I still wake up feeling unsatisfied? Like everything's circumstantially, sometimes everything's circumstantially fine, but it still feels like, man, it's just weariness, weariness. We live in a land of weariness, a never-ending restlessness because of the fall. We're groaning. Now, I just described creation, this world that we live in. Picture like, if we're going to use a... a picture or a metaphor, picture a broken down house. It's broken down, it's sagging, it's run down. There are glass shards everywhere, faded paint, weeds, decay. There's been damage, there's been violence to it. And maybe you look at that house, if you've ever seen like a really broken down house, there's something fascinating about it, but it's something just like, maybe you wonder what it used to be like. How did it even get into this miserable condition? And you can't look at it. You feel overwhelmed. It's, it's sad. It's depressing just looking around you. Now, let me ask a silly question. It'll seem like a silly question, but do you know where you live? And I'm not talking about your address, but the world that I just described, the cursed world, this broken, groaning world. That's the same world you live in. And living in this world, do you bring each day realistic expectations that come from a deep understanding of what Genesis 3 and Romans 8 says? Do you have like this robust theology of the fall, of life in this world, of yourself? Our world has been damaged and dirtied and corrupted by sin. The fall has left this world in a sorry, sad state. And Paul says the whole world is groaning in verse 22, and you are groaning partly because you live in a groaning, messed up world. And you can live in a world where you can expect hardship, you can expect difficulty, you can expect pain, you can expect sorrow. And if you don't embrace that theology, you leave yourself with unrealistic expectations and you leave yourself vulnerable and naive to the temptations that will come. And we expect things to be different than their way They are, and it's amazing to me how much I'm still shocked when suffering enters into my door or into the doors of those that I love. I'm still surprised that I had to face these things. And there's a difference between what is in your mind 
and the theology that's in your heart. There's a difference between what you profess as your savior or what you believe about this world and what has actually captured your heart, your functional theology. Okay, what do I mean by that? Walking along, I'm just walking along, I'm going throughout my day, I think this is going to be a normal day, and then something happened, and it's like, man, what, why did that happen? And immediately, my natural, immediate response is that this isn't how it's supposed to be. Life should be easier. And I get so caught off guard. I'm so blindsided. Like, I can't believe this could happen in my life. And Paul is saying, what do you mean that's not how it's supposed to be? Yes, it is. In the present age of suffering, verse 18, in the present age of suffering, you will suffer. And so often my spontaneous interpretations of life, which I could say is my theology, my worldview, my how I view this world, my functional theology doesn't line up with what I say I believe. And so I interpret suffering as something that I should never have had to deal with in the first place. It's just this intruder. It's alien. It's not supposed to be here. But right expectations and a right theology, a right worldview will help you deal with what's to come. Imagine if you came to my house, okay, and, you're, like, and you don't know what my house is like, and I told you, we come into my living room over there, and I told you, okay, that room over there, I have this heater on inside, and it's, uh, it's 100 degrees in that room, okay? And so I'm setting a certain expectation for you, like how you're going to see things when you enter in that room. What happens when you go into that room and you discover that, oh, it's only 80 degrees? Oh, it's, it's not as bad as I thought. What if I said the opposite? I said, that room over there is 60 degrees. And you go in and it's 80 degrees and you complain about how hot it is. You're caught off guard. Right expectations help you deal with what's to come. No one wants to get blindsided. And so what is the temperature that you expect of life? As Orange County Christians, which we can argue is the center of comfortable Christianity, it's very easy for us to say, I always expect life to be 71 degrees. Nice, breezy. I don't ever want it to get too humid. I don't want it to ever get too freezing. And we just can't adapt. A nice, comfortable Christianity without suffering. If we're honest, we all have some prosperity gospel in us that expects life to be a certain way because, hey, I'm a good person. I, I'm entitled to comfort, and therefore, I'm so easily disappointed. And when we're like that, the threshold for pain and suffering is just very low. It's not surprising to me that you see, like, so much like hurt and pain and depression around me because, man, every generation goes through its unique temptations. But my threshold for pain and suffering, I, I, I get thrown off so easily. And if you have some prosperity gospel, the second suffering enters your life, you see it as an intruder. And if it stays too long, then you will throw out your faith. Doesn't that make sense? 
If I'm following God because I think, you know, this will lead to blessing in my life, the second suffering enters in, there's no point in following God. Look at your natural response when intruders or suffering or something difficult comes into your life, okay? And I want to say this with sensitivity, okay? I'm not trying to say, like, suffering, you know, we, I know my heart goes out to those around you, be, around me, because I know that they're going through a lot of suffering. But what does your natural response to life's difficulty tell you about what you really believe to be your savior, your ultimate value, your functional theology? We can say Jesus is my functional sa- uh, my savior, but functionally, maybe it's more comfort. And if comfort is your savior, then suffering is your worst enemy. And so we really, I think Satan is, is fine with us having the theology of the fall in our heads, but in our hearts thinking life should be a utopia, a paradise. I should build my personal paradise here on earth. It's important that we have a theology that's not just in our minds, but it captures our hearts, that, ex- that helps us set right expectations when we live in a groaning world. I can't, I try so hard. I'm trying to create harmony. I don't want chaos to enter my life. I value harmony, utopia, paradise. I want heaven in my life right now. And I, there's something about me that still thinks that's possible. We live in a fallen, broken, ugly world. There's no escaping it. And the Bible never teaches us that we can escape it. There's some blissful separation or you can, you can get a utopia in this life. The Bible is so like grit, like honest. It's so, it gets into the grittiness of this life. God doesn't hide anything. In fact, it's so graphic at times if you actually read the Bible. And I'm thankful for how honest it is. And so... Don't forget where you live. Let's be honest. Don't deny it. Don't minimize it. We live in a broken down house and things are not okay in us or around us. Be honest. And secondly, it's okay. It's okay to groan. The world, when we look at it, man, especially now, you look at this life, you look at this world and it, it, it kind of sucks. And when you see that, you'll be sad at what you see. And the condition, condition of the world we live in, I think, should make us weep. It should make us mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus saw brokenness and oppression, when he attended a funeral and he saw death, he saw how disease had captured a body, it says he wept and he was angry. We are encountering the world as it really is right now. It's a wake-up call for all of us. Oh, wow, I can't believe a pandemic, a pandemic can enter into my life. It's a broken place. It's groaning. This age is described as an age of suffering. That's the now. Okay. Now, let's talk about the not yet. Starting again with creation, and then we'll talk about us. What is going to happen to this broken, fallen, cursed world? The creation, verse 20 says, was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, 
it's impossible for us to imagine because we see the beauty of nature, but there is a way better version of that. And the world is waiting eagerly and with longing. The universe is, being, is longing to be set free from the curse. It will be set free. No more thorns and thistles, no more weeds, no more predator and prey, no more chaos or decay or breaking down of bodies, no more violence and death. Instead of curse, there will be glory. And God is going somewhere with all of this. God is going to bring eventually the new heavens and a new earth. God is the one, again, that brought fallenness on the universe. It was his judgment upon sin, but he did it in hope that creation will one day be set free. And I wait for this, a new version of this world without the pandemics, without disease, without childhood cancer, without death. But this verse says creation is not center stage. Creation is waiting for something else. It's waiting for the unveiling of the children of God. Creation is actually looking at the church. It's looking at you. And it describes creation in the words as eager longing. Okay? It's waiting eagerly. It's like a child, like when I go to Disneyland and we wait for like the Main Street Parade and we're just waiting. And that time is like torture. It's just waiting, fighting for a spot, like making sure I you know, mark my zone. I put a blanket down and people are crowding and people jumping in. But we're waiting and then there's always like, oh, the parade's going to start in five minutes. The parade's going to start now. And then you hear the sound coming and, and I see my kids on tiptoe just waiting, eagerly longing for what is to come. That's the picture that's described here. Creation is eagerly longing like a child sitting around before a parade asking, when is it going to start? Is it starting now? And creation, what they're waiting for again, is the freedom of the glory of the children of God, which will then lead to the universe being set free, okay? There's something about the glory that we will experience as Christians in our bodies, in our souls, that will be so powerful that when it falls on us, it will wrap around, it will envelop the whole created order, and it will glorify the created order along with us. We will bring nature with us into a renewed, restored, glorified new reality, a new version of itself. We're far from there. We're so weak right now, and so it's hard to imagine all of that. Because, you know, we're sort of at the beginning of the process. We're at the beginning of the journey. We're not completely saved yet. (laughs) And some of you are like, okay, where is that? Okay, it's there. We're adopted, but then it says we're waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We have received the legal status, but we do not have its full realization yet. Jonathan Edwards, one famous theologian, says, Grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. We're waiting for that glory. We're waiting for the process of grace which has started in us to one day be perfected. And we say these phrases all the time, but, you know, we say the goal of the Christian life is to be more Christ-like, and that's true. And do we understand that one day that goal will be achieved? where we will finally, completely get our act together. 
to have his character, have his beauty, to have his heart. It's so hard to imagine because we see all the brokenness in us, but that process will be finalized. And one day, think about this, you will actually be like Christ. And the process of sanctification or growth will be complete. He will make you so much like Jesus that I, I, I don't know if we saw that version of ourselves now, I'm not sure we would recognize ourselves. We may be even tempted, like John did in Revelation, to bow down and worship. There will be something about that where we won't even understand. But it will be awe-inspiring. You will be like Christ, so much like Jesus. You will be you, but not you. Who will deliver me from this body of death, my frailty, my weakness, my corruption, my brokenness, this fallen body? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, where the process of growth, you will be complete. You will be whole. You will be fully mature. And so creation, like, you know, I'm waiting for the world around me to be restored, but creation is actually waiting for the day when God will reveal his people, the church, in his glorified state as his grand design, as his ultimate masterpiece, and then creation will look at us and it will praise God. I already used the house as a metaphor, but let's continue that, but instead talking about the world, let's use us as, uh, let's say we are like a house, okay? Imagine yourself as a living house, okay? And this is a C.S. Lewis quote. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on extra floors there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a little decent cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, he says, if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us, filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process can be long and very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less he meant what he said. That's the process. One day we will be glorified and the process will be complete. Now, we've looked at the now. Okay? Creation groans and we groan. We've looked at the not yet where we will be glorified and creation will be glorified. And this passage puts those two next to each other and asks a simple question, is it worth it? Is the present suffering worth it? Are the groans worth it? Because isn't that a question that every Christian at a certain point asks? And some people will say, no. And they'll bail out. 
Paul answers this question all throughout the Bible, all throughout his letters, and he says with an emphatic yes. In fact, he says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what he's saying is if you know where you're heading in the future, you won't even entertain the idea that your current pain is not worth it. The sufferings of the present time are incomparable to the glory that is to come. And he's trying to put before you, understand your present suffering in light of future glory. And do you notice what it says in verse 22? It says, creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Childbirth. And a woman who cries out at childbirth, we know intuitively is very different from a woman who cries out at the death of her child. This universe, it describes, is not heading into death, but it's in the midst of birth pangs. It's not the groanings of death, it's the groanings of new life. I've participated in two births for my daughter and my son. I've heard and seeing the pain, and I am not going to pretend as a man that I fully understand that. But when I do go through that, there's this part of me, especially after the first child, when I ask myself, I keep looking around at all the moms around me, why would you have more than one child? Why do all the moms around me keep having more than one kid? Not one, not two, not three, I have a friend that has six. Why do they do that? Why does the mom continually choose to put herself through the birth pains and the recovery process and then a lifetime of sacrifice? Because the joy wrapped up in that baby has overcome the pains of childbirth and recovery and a lifetime of sacrifice. And so parents, especially the mom, even the mom decides... Are we going to have another kid? Seems like a reasonable thing to do. You know, Paul is so realistic about our struggles, the now, isn't he? Trials are real. He never like pulls his punches. He's like, suffering is coming. Jesus made that very clear. Like, as my disciple, you will deny yourself, take up your cross. You will go through suffering. You'll go through tribulation, flipsis, all types of different things. And there will come times, you know, you have books like the book of Job where it's just like, oh, I want to die. I just want to die. That's exactly what Job is like. Life is hard. I, just, I would just rather die. Extremely honest. And what Paul is saying, and what you have to wrestle with, whether or not you believe this, is that even if you stack up that suffering and you put it all together, He has the boldness to say that it won't compare to the glory that will come. And you can say, if you didn't know Paul, you can say like, oh, you're just an armchair theologian. You don't really know until you see that he is basically the poster child of suffering. Do you see why it's important to see the now? And the not yet. And how the not yet relates to the now. 
The now matters. And the not yet matters. And what you know about the not yet will help you during the now. Future, expecta- ex- future expectations change present experience. Future expectations change present experience. It changes how you su- experience that suffering. We all need something we look forward to. What if you had a job that was just complete drudgery, complete just mundaneness, to- everything is tedious about it, and you said, and you found out there's nothing you're going to get at the end? What if you found out you're going to get a thousand times more than what you're getting paid. You would be whistling during that tediousness. What if you had a race where there's no end to the race, there's no finish line, and it's just pain and groaning and training, and there's nothing at the end? What if there was a finish line that was just glorious? The final destination is so much greater. Paul in Romans chapter 8 is putting the glory of the not yet. He's trying to put it before your eyes, not so that you can escape, but so that you can endure. Endurance is very undervalued. But in a race, in a marathon, and in the Christian life, endurance trumps zeal all the time. And you need to see the finish line if you're going to have that endurance. Paul summarizes it for us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 through 18. And I I just think it's such a beautiful verse. But it's saying the similar or the same thing, basically. For this light, momentary affliction, and light and momentary may not feel like that to us, but in comparison, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We don't have it yet. That's why it says in Romans 8, we look to it in hope. We don't see it yet. We haven't yet gotten it. And so we look to it in hope. And just a, I, I found this quote from a, a Christian writer named Chris Wright. He says, whatever it may be like, he's talking about like the not yet, we can rest assured that for those who are in Christ, anything that has blessed us and enriched us in this life will not be lost, but rather infinitely enhanced in the resurrection. And anything we have not been able to enjoy in this life because of disability or disease or premature death will be amply restored and compensated for in the resurrection life or the life to come. And there's something about this section I don't understand because what we have to come will be greater because of the loss we've experienced. And I can't fully comprehend that, but because of the loss we experience and will experience in this life, what we have to come will be even greater. Let me close with some final thoughts, okay? And I'll admit, okay, this sermon used to be four points, okay? 
And my wife was like, no, don't make it too long on the <laughs> Zoom call or online, right? And I was like, you're right. Okay, I don't want to go for like an hour or 10, okay? It was four points, but the last two points, I'm just cheating because I'm moving it into the conclusion, and I'm just going to give you like a SparkNotes version of this, okay? But because I can't read the Romans 8 and not go over at least some of the rest of the chapter, okay? But some final thoughts, Okay, I read this quote again from this Puritan author where he was saying, the future is bright for every Christian, no matter what your present trials, because he that rises to be crowned will not think much of a rainy day. This is by Puritan author John Trapp. And I read that and I was thinking like, oh, that's great. The Puritans are always so inspiring. But part of me was like, whenever I read the Puritans, I'm like, easier said than done. Easier said than done. It's not that easy. But here's a couple thoughts I want to leave you in the meantime, okay? Because Paul actually gives us in the meantime. In verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That word, verse 26, at the beginning, likewise, is a little confusing. Just replace that with the word meanwhile. Okay, we looked at the not yet, we looked at the now, but in the meanwhile, in this moment, you are going to have times where, man, I just think I'm so smart. I'm so capable. I'm so competent. And then you face this situation where, God, I don't know what to do. And all you can do is groan, like physically groan. In that moment, you just groan where you, you don't have the words to say. It's just inarticulate. You just come out and it's just like, <sighs> In that moment, Paul is trying to reassure you that you will be helped. We do not know. That's a good thing. We do not know. God, I don't know. I don't get it. And it's good to know what you don't know. To be in the state of weakness. Do you notice it doesn't say he will help us in our weaknesses? No, in our state, our natural state, we're weak. I am helpless. I am incapable. I am broken. And when your prayers in this moment of weakness right now, when your prayers are inarticulate, they're gibberish, they're groaning, they're sighing, it says the Spirit of God will intercede and He will understand your heart even if your words can't express it. I have times where my kids come up, especially when they're first talking, like where Micah is right now, where they just come up and it's just like, park, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, okay. But immediately my wife is like, oh, he's saying he went to the park yesterday. He went on the slide and he enjoyed it. And then he, he saw something. He saw a flower. He saw a bird. It all sounds like gibberish when you talk to a kid, except when you talk to them all. And I think that's the closest metaphor I can get to this. When I say... What I'm saying, or I can't express myself, and I just feel this hopelessness, and I don't know what to pray, the Spirit at that moment is saying, here's what Pat is saying. I'll tell you what he's really saying right now, Father. 
And there's the core of our prayers. You know, honestly, we all have like dumb prayers, right? We're like, give me a girlfriend, give me, give me a new car, give me all these different things, right? We have these like dumb, honest prayers, but there's always a core to that. There's like the sort of the dumb part, but there's like the core to it. The high, you know, the Holy Spirit gets the core of your prayer, even when you can't express it correctly. And he will pray on your behalf when you don't know because the Spirit knows. When you are too weak to act like a child of God, the Spirit will help you and he will pray for you. And when the Spirit prays for you, it's guaranteed. And the Spirit is doing the same thing in your heart that Jesus is doing in heaven. He's praying on your behalf right now. Not just saying like, hey, don't worry about the now. You know, look at the future. No, it's so balanced. He's like, no, in the meantime, I'm going to understand. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be intimately involved in your suffering, in your groanings. And I'm going to help you and I'm going to pray for you. When we don't know, the Spirit knows. And then in this sin, suffering, broken, groaning world, when we have so many times where it's just like, God, I don't know, I don't understand It says the Spirit helps us in our not knowing. He groans, he prays, he feels with you. And so when you don't know, that's my first final thought. That was supposed to be a lot more of a point, okay? When you don't know, pray when you don't know. Secondly, and the last point, trust what you do know. Trust what you do know. It's so easy for us when we're in the middle of suffering to focus on the questions and what I don't get, what, are, what is missing from the puzzle. And we focus on all the blanks, all the emptiness. But Romans 8.28 says, and we know. This is what we do know. And you got to stick to what you do know, that for those who love God All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers, many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will take you to the end. He also glorified. And is God up to something? Christian, yes, God is up to something. He is making you like him. That is the good that is being talked about. Do you understand how that works all the time? Do you know like why exactly in every situation? No, but we know that it's not pointless. That it's purposeful. And that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that's an important qualifier here. It's not talking about the whole world. It's not talking about unbelievers. It's to those who have been called, meaning those who have responded to his call. Are you called? Have you responded to his call in repentance and faith? Have you believed the gospel that says that Jesus Christ lived this perfectly righteous life? He lived the life of obedience that we could not live. And then he died the death that we should have died. And then he rose again three days later, according to the scriptures and to newness of life. He rose from the dead and that now those who believe in him are going to be, are saved. Those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Not just those who say, I believe in God, but those who say, I've trusted my life to Jesus. If that's you, you've been called. 
And you know you're going to face suffering in this life, but we also know that God is determined to bring us to the end. He is sovereignly working on your behalf. He has given his spirit as a guarantee. We know that we are children of God. We are heirs. God is our father. We are his people. You will suffer and God is sovereign over that suffering and his purpose expands beyond the now and stretches into the not yet. This is going to be a weird phrase for us, okay? And if your God is not big enough, you won't be able to handle this, okay? You got to have a big God to understand this, but God is the Lord of human pain. And my sovereign father is the Lord of my pain, not just my blessings, But Romans 8, 28 through 30 assures us that nothing can stop this process, this unbreakable chain where God will triumph, his promise will be fulfilled. And what's the last word of verse 30? Glory. Nothing can stop that. You have to trust what you do know. We have Romans 8.32 that says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Like, do I fully understand this life and the pain and the suffering? Do I fully see? No. But do I know? Has he proven himself that he's faithful? If he took care of me in the cross, if he was willing to go that far in the cross, it's a greater to lesser argument. If he did that greater thing, don't you think he will take care of you today? He will get you to the finish line. It's not mission possible. It will be mission accomplished. What will it look like if you stick to what you know in the middle of not knowing? Here's, I think, a picture of what it will look like to suffer well. And Romans 8 gives it to us. You will wait with hope. The whole first half of my sermon, the cynics can be like, yeah, that's right. This life sucks. But you will be a hope-filled Christian because God is God of hope and the future is bright. You will wait with patience, not trying to take things into your own hands. Apart from God, justice will be served We're not Avengers. We're not called to get antsy or anxious or bitter, but to wait patiently because he will make all the wrongs right. You will wait eagerly where you're not going to get so comfortable. Hasn't this whole thing just reminded us and maybe revealed to us for the first time? Like, what, what does it look like to put your hope in this world? Ephesians 2 talks about unbelievers as those without hope, without God. What if I just stopped the sermon after the first point? But all the suffering we're going after right now, we're going through right now in this world, should cause us to love the world less. It's not worth holding on to. You will pray in your weakness and groan because the Spirit understands you. He is with you. He will help you. And his prayer is guaranteed to be answered. And you will trust because God is the God even of your pain. He is the Lord of our pain. Jesus knows that pain. And he will redeem it. You will endure and you will get to the glory of the finish line. If we understand Romans 18 as Paul, uh, Romans 8 as Paul describes it here, we will never minimize suffering. Our hearts will groan with others, but we'll see each other suffer well. 
not get bitter, but be hopeful, to get stronger, to be humble. And we'll look at the now, and we'll think, man, this is not my home. And we'll long eagerly, like a child waiting for the parade, for the not yet, for the glory that is to come. Let's pray. Paul says later in the book of Romans, may the God of hope fill you. And make this your prayer with me. May the God of hope fill you, fill our church with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. God, it's... it's uh, it's easy to want to comfort each other, and that's good. It's easy to want to minimize the pain and suffering we see in each other's life, and that would be fine. But God, ultimately, I pray that we would be a church that faces the reality of suffering. We would be the community, but ultimately, we would point to the Savior. We have a foundation. We have truth that the world does not have. We have hope that the world does not have. We have the gospel. We have Christ. We know we are your children. We cry out to you as Abba Father. I pray that that would not stay in our minds but the truth of the not yet would help us be faithful today, to endure today even the most horrific of sufferings. Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, when your Holy Spirit help those right now who in their weakness don't know how to pray, but all they can do is groan or all they can do is cry out, Father. God, help us to suffer well, to be faithful, to not waste these times, but to be more like Christ. And so God, we look to the day, we look to the future, we long for the future. This life is difficult, we're in a fallen world, but we know the best is yet to come. And so thank you, Jesus, for this hope. Thank you to the Holy Spirit who helps us in the meantime. Thank you to God, our Father, for being our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.